there seems to be <clears throat> a lot of <clears throat> a lot of hostility even for the Christmas season in this day and age. And that message there, that passage that David read, uh, is is very prevalent to us. I don't think there needs to be as much hostility and and fighting as we have in this day and age. I, I think that if we do as the Bible asks us to do and make it our heart's desire and our soul desire to bring glory to God in all things, uh, I think we we win. And I think that has to become our focus. And, and so the title of, of today's message is uh, The Reason for the Season. <laughs> I know everybody here just rolled their eyes. I, I think it's a great phrase, though, don't you? Jesus is the reason for the season. Don't you think it's a good phrase? I love how Western Christianity can take something, make it into this like little pithy rhyme, and then feel good about themselves for just kind of respouting this rhyme over and over. Really, it doesn't make any difference in their lives. They just say, oh yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season. But you know what? Today, I actually want to explore that concept a little bit more than just leaving it at the surface level. And for us to stand around here as Christians and say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, what is the reason? What is the reason of Jesus? And don't worry, I'm not going to stand up here and berate all of you after you've just opened up all of your Christmas gifts and you got all those shiny new things and tell you how consumerism has wrecked Christianity. Although I'm, I'm sure that some of us at this point still kind of feel that a little bit. It's, it still kind of lingers there for us. I, the Lord, the Bible says the Lord has given us all good things. And we can give praise to God to him for those good things. Because they come to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we give glory and praise to God for Jesus Christ in this time. You see, the reason for Christmas, I don't believe, can be destroyed. I, I think that we can replace it in our hearts and minds, but I do not believe that it can be destroyed. The Bible makes it clear over and over again the significance of what Christ accomplished, and it makes it clear to us the significance of what we celebrate at this time of year. Now, it seems a little strange that I'd be having a Christmas message now after Christmas is over, but we're still in the Christmas season. And it maybe is a good thing for us to pause and reflect, saying, really, Christmas is in our hearts, and the reason for all of life is in us all year long. So what does the Bible say was the reason that Jesus came to be a man? See, there's a litany of reasons, uh, and I've only chosen just a few that the Scriptures pull out. The first one is, is, is that he wanted to reveal to us the Father. In John 14, 9, if John 14, you have Jesus about ready to depart and he's telling the disciples uh, that one is going to be with him and that he's going to go and they're going to be with him. And, and Philip comes to Jesus and he says, just show us the Father. Show us the Father so that we can, we can believe. And this was Jesus' reply in 14, 9. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, part of Jesus' purpose here on earth, the reason he came was to reveal to us God. God incarnate to reveal to us the Father. Another one is, is that he came as a fulfillment of promises. If you think about David and Mary, 
Or you think about Simeon and Moses, all, all, or almost, almost all the prophets, uh, or, or even the Israelites themselves. See, Jesus came to fulfill the promises that were quoted to them or were spouted in the Old Testament. John 5.22 says that he came to judge us righteously. 1 Peter 2.21 says that he came to be an example. It says, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And that goes along with what Dave read in our, our scripture reading uh, just previous. But I've chosen actually one to focus on today. One reason that we can say Jesus is the reason for the season. And I want to make that my focus for the rest of the message. And that's found in 1 John chapter 3. See, 1 John chapter 3 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump to 1 John chapter 3, and we're just going to start in verse 1. To see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what I will be, and sorry, we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away the sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either sees, or sorry, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does uh, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a, it's a bit of a strange passage for this time and season, but I think it's extremely important. important. See, I believe that the people who will experience the fullest, fullest meaning of Christ, uh, Christmas are the people who know and feel that there is something in them that needs to be destroyed. It is true, as John said in John 3, 17, that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him we might, that, sorry, the world through him might be saved. But he saves by destroying. It's kind of like a doctor who amputates a foot full of gangrene or cuts out a cancerous lung. Jesus said, those who are, all, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners, Mark chapter 2. The only people who understand Christmas and embrace Christmas for what it is are people who feel sick, who desperately want their sickness to be destroyed. 
Unless you welcome Jesus as a destroyer in your life, you can't have him as a savior. And I want to make sure I enunciated that properly. As a destroyer, not a destroyer of your life. As a destroyer in your life. And of course, we're talking about, as John talked about, or 1 John chapter 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, Christmas is the celebration of the appearing of, uh, on earth of, of Jesus as God's son. And the reason he appeared is to destroy the work of the devil. So the reason there is a Christmas is because God aims to destroy something. There's three questions I want to answer in relation to this. This sort of Christmas mission of Jesus Christ. The first one is, what did the Son of God come to destroy? The second one was, how did he destroy it? And the third one is, how can we participate personally in his victory? The answer to the first one is really quite simple. What did the Son of God come to destroy? Well, verse 8 says it very plainly, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. But I think we have to go a little bit further. What are the works of the devil? If we work in sort of concentric circles back around that verse in verse 8, we have verse 8a and verse 9 that are the closest to it. Verse 8a says, He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Then we come to our passage, then the works of, uh, sorry, the, that God came to destroy the works of the devil, and we jump to verse 9. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It seems pretty plain, right? The works of the devil here are sins. First John says that the devil sins, and those who sin are his. Then he says Christ came to destroy Satan's work, and then he says no one born of God commits sin. So once you agree then that the works of the devil, which the Son of God came to destroy, are sins. Surely we, we, we should put the word therefore at the beginning of verse 9. It reads, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the, the devil. Therefore, no one born of God commits sin. When people commit sin, it is the work of of the devil. The work of the devil is to tempt people to sin. When they sin, his work has been accomplished. So what the Son of God came to destroy is not just the guilt of sin, which might actually enable us to stay the way we are and go right on sinning into heaven, but actually destroy sinning itself. The Son of God came to destroy sinning. Christmas is God's invasion of enemy territory to rescue the people from the devil and destroy the sin that is in their lives. Let's take this one more concentric circle out from our passage. And let's try to define the works of the devil more precisely. What is sin? Well, if you look at verse 4, everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The law in John's mind here is not the Constitution. It's not the speed limit or COVID mandates. It is God's law, the expression of God's revealed will for his creatures. Lawlessness is living as though your own ideas are superior to God's. Verse 5. 
Lawlessness says God may demand it, but I don't prefer it. Lawlessness says God may promise it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with my contrary desires. I become a law to myself. Lawlessness is rebellion against the right of God to make laws and govern his creatures. We live in a lawless day where where everyone from the lowest in, in humanity that to, to the highest in government live as a law unto themselves. But the Bible is very clear. Jesus came to destroy that. So now we can see better what the Son of God came to destroy. See, the work of the devil are sins, and sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is rebellion against the right to God to rule over us. The work of Satan is to tempt us to reject the authority of God and become like God ourselves, as Dave explored a couple of, of Sundays ago in the Genesis account. Satan works to nurture and cultivate the pride that puts its own desire above the law of God. This is lawlessness. This is the essence of, of sin, and this is what the Son of God came to destroy in you and in me. So how did he destroy it? The text actually gives us two answers, and we need to ask how these two are related. The two answers are his appearing and the new birth. In verse 8, it says, The Son of God appeared to destroy the work of the devil. In other words, the way Christ destroys sin is by appearing. That is, by coming from heaven and being born in the form of man. Now, probably John has in his mind here not just the presence uh, of the Son of God, but all that he did by living and dying and rising from the dead. So, the first answer to how Christ destroys the work of the devil is that he appears. He comes to live and die and rise again. The second answer is in verse 9. No one born of God commits sin. Sin is conquered, the work of the devil is destroyed when a person is born of God, or in common Christian language, born again. Verse 9 tells us uh, then a little bit further what it means to be born again. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature, or literally God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, anybody can sin who wants to sin. So when John says that a person born of God cannot sin, he must mean that a person born of God has new wants or new desires. It's like a birth. Something new has come into existence. Paul calls it a new creation. Jeremiah calls it a new heart. Ezekiel calls it a new spirit. Being born of God is being changed by God so that the dominion of sin is broken. But how is it broken? Verse 9 says that when a person is born of God, God's seed abides in him. That's why he cannot sin. The image is taken from ordinary human birth. When a father begets a child, the father's seed abides in the child. Something of the father is in the child and makes them like his father. God's character is the very opposite of sin. 
Therefore, the child of God will be like his father. He will not be able to sin. And I want to be very clear here that John isn't teaching sinless perfection. I know this sounds like John is teaching this, but there are several reasons why we know he isn't. One is that the Greek verb here, commit sin or sin in verse 9, implies continuous action. It would be well translated, no one born of God is content to keep sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot be content to keep on sinning because he is born of God. And it's important that we make that distinction. No one who is born of God is content to continually be in their sin. The most obvious reason, though, if even if you don't know Greek, actually comes to John's teaching uh, on sinless perfection is actually in chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John goes as far as to tell Christians that it is, that it is a sin to say you are sinless. So John is not talking about sinless perfection. But if a poor person who is born of God does not become sinlessly perfect in this life, and yet, as 3.9 says, cannot be content to go on sinning, what is the Christian life? How should we describe it? Well, that answer, I feel, comes from 1 John chapter 1. And if you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it gives us a little bit of help. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all your sin if you walk in the light. So walking in the light is very different from walking in the dark. But it does not mean sinless perfection. If you want to think about it this way, you can think about what the light reveals. Uh, John Piper goes on to describe a little bit in, in uh, a book of his about what it means to be walking in the light versus walking in the darkness and talking about sin. And if you've ever seen uh, Monsters, Inc., Sully is a big, furry, scary monster. Now, if you could picture Sully... Uh, being a completely horrendous and ferocious and and want to bite your head off monster, in the dark, Sully would be and feel very cuddly and very comfortable. Whereas the armor of God would feel very cold and rigid. But he says, and John Piper goes on to say that as, as you walk in the light, as you step into the light, actually the sin is revealed for what it is. And the armor of God in Christ is revealed for what it is. And so he encourages us to walk in the light as Christ is in the light so that we can get an understanding of what sin actually is. The blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all our sins. And if you walk in the light, walking in the light is very, very different and reveals very different things. And then we get this understanding that verse 7 then teaches that if we walk in the light, the sins that we commit are cleansed. They're forgiven, swept away, blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. Walking in the light doesn't mean that you are sinless. It means that you see your sins now in God's light and respond to them the way that God would have us respond. 
Verse 9 of 1 John uh, chapter 1 is a clear parallel to chapter or verse 7. And it teaches this, if we confess our sins, that's the correspondence of if we walk in the light, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That corresponds to the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So a person who walks in the light confesses sin. That means he sees sin the way that God does and agrees with God in it. He hates sin. He is sorry for sin. He turns and flees from known sin. When sin is pointed out in his life, he does not bristle with self-righteousness. He confesses. He admits. And he repents. Walking in the light means having your eyes open to the truth about God and sin and Christ. Now let's step back and see if we can sort of gather up these loose ends of the dialogue here. We're in the second question of the message. The first was, what did the Son of God come to destroy? The answer was the works of the devil, namely sin or lawlessness of rebellion. He came to give us victory over sin in our lives. The second question was, how did Christ destroy the work of the devil? Well, first he did it by appearing as the Son of God, living, dying for our sins and rising again. The second is, is that he did it through the new birth in 1 John 3, 9. It says that when we were born of God, we commit, uh, sorry, we cannot sin. But we saw that this does not mean sinless perfection in this life. It means that God works a change in, our, in us so that we cannot be content to go on sinning. In other words, we strive for sinless perfection. Do, do, do we all, I, I hope we're all tracking with this. It does not mean sinless perfection, but we strive for it. Now, I promised a third question, but I've kind of already answered it. The third question is, how can we participate personally in the victory of Christ? Let me refer to one more verse and then close. 1 John 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. The way we participate personally in Christ's victory over the world and the works of the devil is by trusting him believing he is the very Son of God, with all that it implies about his power to work for your good. So my encouragement to you this Christmas season is that the Son of God appeared to destroy the work of the devil, our sins, our lawlessness, and our rebellion. The way he did this was by dying for our sins and redeeming for us the new birth. The way we participate in this victory is by trusting in that promise of God to work all things together for our good. May the Lord open our eyes to his glory and give us this faith. And as we go from this place and we kind of live out the remainder of this Christmas season, may we realize the truth of this that exists in our lives from now and forevermore. Jesus Christ came to destroy the work of the devil. As believers in Jesus Christ, we participate in that victory. We strive to live as Christ lived. We strive to make ourselves obedient to God the Father as Christ was obedient to God the Father, even unto death. For God's namesake, for his glory, and for his kingdom to increase. You see, this Christmas season, this COVID season, this life, it's not about us. It's about him. 
And so let's give praise to God for the victory that he has had over the work of the devil. Because that's what he came to destroy in you and in me. And let's give praise for that destruction. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We give you praise for all that you are. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you again, most, most of all, that he came to destroy the work of the devil. And that through his death and his resurrection, Lord God, he gave us the opportunity to be called the children of God to come into right relationship with you so that the work of the devil might be destroyed in us. Now, Lord, I pray that we as believers in his, your son would be able to live that out. Lord God, that we would strive for sinless perfection that we would strive to have all angst of sin just rooted out from us, that we would desire to live, Lord, in complete harmony with your law. Lord, take away that lawless rebellion. Lord, we pray that, that you would be revealed in our lives this day in an extra special way. Lord, we pray for those who are feeling isolated and alone, particularly in this season during COVID. Lord, we pray that they would find a way to be rejuvenated, to be re-energized, Lord, by, by your spoken word, your, your revealed word through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray that any who are, are lost and trapped in this darkness will have the light revealed to them. And Lord God, that in this season, they would give you praise for all things. We thank you that we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Lord, in that you love us so much and we are never alone. We give you praise for this in your son's name, the wonderful and holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.